You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. Discipleship. If you would now, please turn in your Bible to Judges chapter 6, this Old Testament book that has sometimes been characterized as the book of superheroes in the Old Testament. But uh, as I've tried to show in weeks past, the only true superhero in the Bible is God, who uses very weak and very frail men to accomplish great things for his kingdom. If you think back, you might recall an experience when you were in school, perhaps in high school or your college years, where you worked intensely for many, many hours on summer project or writing a paper uh, to be startled in a discovery just maybe days or even hours before the assignment was due that you had completely misunderstood the assignment. And then, of course, becomes the the frantic effort to to redo your work, to completely start over, because what you have to present to your professor is not acceptable. According to the assignment, you must follow the guidelines of your instructor in order to be accepted. And what you have is not acceptable, no matter how costly it is to you, no matter how painful the rewrite, you have to redo the work. Well, we come tonight in our series, and we find the Lord himself giving instructions on worship to Gideon. And in this instructions is a call to redo, to to tear down the old way of idolatry and rewrite uh, the prescription for worship to the one true God. The Lord will suffer no rivals. He will compete with no competitors to his glory and for the worship of his people. Well, like the people of old and ancient Israel, we too live in a day that is filled with idolatry. Idols crowd our lives. They seek to penetrate our hearts that have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. And we would be called and exhorted by this text to tear down those false altars. And worship the Lord alone for his glory. Please follow as I read in in Judges chapter 6 beginning in verse 24. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it the Lord is peace. To this day it stands in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. That same night the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town, He did it at night rather than in the daytime. In the morning when the men of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished with the Asherah pole beside it cut down and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. 
They asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The men of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son. He must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, Are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So that day they called Gideon, Jerob, Baal, saying, Let Baal contend with him, because he broke down Baal's altar. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abiezrites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. So they too went up to meet them. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. This time, make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let us pray. Father, we're amazed at your power, your power over the nations, your power over the wicked, and we're also amazed at your graciousness to your people, to your servants, even when we are frail and backsliding, you are gracious and merciful. We ask, O Lord, that you might instruct us from this text tonight, you might lead us into pure and holy worship of you for your honor and glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Many of us are likely familiar with the life of Oskar Schindler. He was the German businessman who, during World War II, turned from being a profiteer in the war effort to becoming a kind of savior for the lives of many Jews. Mr. Schindler, at first driven by greed and the desire for money, found his niche building factories to work and and supply military equipment for the German war machine. In order to uh, keep costs down and to keep profits up, he capitalized and exploited cheap Jewish labor, offering them refuge in his factories as an alternative to going to concentration camps. But first driven only by money and by more and more success, as Mr. Schindler became more aware of the sad plight of his workers, their stories began to penetrate his idolatrous heart. 
as he witnessed the horrors of the final solution, of the liquidation of this race of peoples. And as he recognized his own folly in his relentless pursuit of money and prestige, Mr. Schindler took a 180-degree turn in the opposite direction and even went on to undermine the German war effort. The remainder of his days during the war, he expent his time, his energy, and his resources to secure as many additional Jewish workers as he possibly could to spare them the horrors of the concentration camps. Not only did he save lives, he also instructed his workers to intentionally produce flawed equipment so that they might fail on the battlefield, leaving the German army and air force to the mercies of the oncoming allied forces. And so it was with great personal risk that Mr. Schindler took up this plight, took up the concern of the Jews, no doubt aware that if his plot fell into the hands of the authorities in Germany, they would no doubt take vengeance upon him. But what was at stake was the lives of these innocent people versus the tyranny of the Nazi regime. He had to make a choice. Whose side was he on? All this time he had been living for himself. But now he had a new purpose, to live for something greater than himself, the saving of many lives. Like Oscar Schindler, the judge that's profiled in our text tonight had to make a choice to break away from the gross idolatry of his people at great personal risk. The Lord had raised him up as a kind of savior to deliver an oppressed people. He must choose his loyalties between placating the idols of his kinsmen or returning to the Lord their God who redeemed them from the house of bondage. Many of us were like Mr. Schindler, driven by ambition, serving self rather than God. Some of us are like Gideon, tolerating idolatrous practices, compromising our faith and our devotion to Christ. But tonight, Jesus would have us renounce the world and its folly to tear down the altars the false gods in our lives, that we might follow him in true freedom and righteousness. As our text opens, we find Gideon responding to the gracious act of God. Pastor De Bruin two weeks ago recorded how the angel of the Lord appears to give instruction to Gideon. And after realizing, realizing that he had been in the presence of of the Lord, the Lord manifest in this angel-like messenger. Gideon is grateful to be alive and receives the message of peace that his life has been spared. And so offers up not an altar of sacrifice at this point, but a kind of a memorial to the Lord who has granted his peace. But no doubt that evening as Gideon pondered the, this mountaintop 
mountaintop experience with the Lord, he receives a startling order. God speaks to him, commanding him to commit sacrilege, to tear down the altar of Baal, to cut up the Asherah pole beside it. And the Lord in this command demonstrates that he will take only first place. The Lord will not tolerate any rivals. Baal may tolerate Yahweh and his pantheon, but Yahweh is jealous. He is exclusive. A while back, I heard a story about colonial, colonial America. Apparently, in this small community, there were young bachelor men who were settling the land and preparing it to be worked and and sown and and developed. And a ship of young women of marriageable age came to join them. As you might expect, this great frenzy of courtship was uh, entered upon. And in the great haste to match up, a young, desirable woman made the mistake of giving her pledge in marriage to two young suitors. Well, unfortunately, she would have to reject one of them. She could not have them both. And once she pledges herself to one man, he must take the first place. And that other man does not get even second place. He gets no place at all. Likewise, we have a God who plays for keeps. He will take the first place and the only place, not, receive, not, re, not bearing second place or even last place for competitors. All idols have to go. And so God commands Gideon to take a seven-year-old bull, one year for each of their Midianite bondage, and sacrifice it on a new altar in place of the altar to Baal. And to add insult to injury, he is to cut up the Asherah pole and use it for firewood, all that it was really good for to provide the sacrifice on this altar to the Lord. There is no place at the table of the Lord for idolatry. My wife and I have had to establish boundaries in our home, especially at the dinner table. There are certain things that are not acceptable at the dinner table. Rude noises, potty talk, and disrespect are all especially repugnant at the dinner table. And like good table manners, the Lord requires his people to feast in his presence clean, pure, and undefiled by the worthless gods of this age. What festering idols need to be demolished in your life, in my life? As we enter into the holiday season, I'm reminded that oftentimes the holidays are an occasion that reveal some of our worst idols. Our addiction to spending. Our lust for more entertainment. How we manage to yield to every whim of our demanding families. The expectations of 
our parents and our children and so forth. You know, the holidays are a tremendous opportunity to express thanksgiving, to adore Christ incarnate. Yet all too often, this season is glutted by worldly practices. We eat too much. We buy too much. We get too much. We watch too much. We give too little, and we give in too much. Of course, anything good in excess becomes something bad, like leftovers turning green in the back of the refrigerator. Tonight, might we ask the Lord to open our eyes, to give us grace to obey him, to tear down those things that have to go, that have no place at the Lord's table, to put him first in our lives and our worship. Well, in verse 27, as Gideon takes action to fulfill the Lord's command, it appears that he is afraid. And so he commits this great deed under cover of darkness. It would seem, as we consider this text and coming passage in chapter 7, that Pastor Light, Lord willing, will cover next week. It would seem that this task of tearing down the altar of Baal might have been more difficult for Gideon than leading armies to go off and fight the Midianites. He seems more intimidated by offending his kinsfolk than even risking his own life on the battlefield. That often is the case. That confronting one's family can be harder than contending with one's enemies. We know of soldiers who are terrific heroes fighting Al-Qaeda on foreign shores. And yet at home there is strife and discord in their marriages and with their children. Police officers chase after drug lords. Emergency response professionals rush into danger with an adrenaline high and yet flee from the messiness of their own private lives. Men leave the home to go to work to fight the battles of the workplace with more courage than confronting the emotional and psychological idol structures that are entrenched in Every marriage, every family system. And I believe we need to begin tonight to recognize that the idolatry we have in our own households is of first most importance. That we might confront one another. That we might deal with the false worship and redirect one another to love and honor and serve the Lord our God who suffers no rivals. Well, the next morning, the men of Ophrah wake up to a startling discovery. Their altar to Baal is destroyed. They recognize that this is no mere juvenile prank. This is a serious attack on their God. They investigate and learn that the culprit is none other than Gideon, perhaps tattled on by one of his ten servants. Well, in their great zeal, these angry men demand the life of Gideon. This is no laughing matter. He has committed sacrilege. 
He has compromised and threatened the welfare of the community. Their prosperity is at stake before the wrath of a vengeful deity. Back in August, I took my children on a hike in Tuckwan Glen, the beautiful nature preserve in southwest Lancaster County. It's become one of our favorite hiking grounds in recent years. But unfortunately, about 10 minutes into our hike, one of my children was attacked by a yellow jacket. And we ran on and we rushed on down the trail, and only five or 10 minutes later did we stumble upon yet another yellow jacket's nest, and then sadly another one of my children got stung. So unfortunately, we had to cut our hike short and hurry back to the house, and I only hope that my children will be brave enough to go back to that hiking grounds when the stinging insects are not in season. But as the old saying goes, we literally stepped into a hornet's nest. Gideon has stirred up a hornet's nest by striking at the heart of these men's idolatry, by bringing down in shambles their false trust in a false Canaanite deity. He provokes their fear. He provokes their anger, and he stirs up all of their animosity that threatens to consume him in response. You know, it's usually our strongest emotional reactions to people and circumstances that betray the hidden idols of our hearts. Our desire for order is irritated by chaos. When our peace and quiet is disrupted by the actions of others, we respond in great frustration. When someone else seeks recognition in our place, so it pricks our pride. An unwarranted expense is an assault on our financial welfare. In these instances, as we respond with anger, fear, we trade away the peace of knowing and following Jesus Christ by trusting in vain idols. Their altars are many. The altar of money, time, self security, the approval of others. And it's during these most heated emotional events that we must ask ourselves, what is going on inside of me? What is it that is controlling me? In whom? In what am I trusting? Rather than the all-sufficient grace and love of our heavenly Father. Will the men rise up in response to Gideon's action and demand his life, demand his death from his father? Now, a typical man who fears other men might have yielded to this response to save his own skin and to save his household. And yet, Gideon's obedience to the Lord seems to have stirred up the zeal of his father, Joash, who is now returned to the Lord, who is God over Baal and Asherah. 
with great courage, Joash proceeds to expose the folly of idolatry. Notice the cutting sarcasm of his questions. He says to the men, Are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? If Baal is really a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. Whether out of fear of Joash's position in the community, perhaps persuaded by his shrewd logic, or just plain curious to see what Baal would do, these men back off their attack. The days apparently pass. Gideon is still alive. The ground has not swallowed him up whole. And so Baal is discredited as yet another impotent god. In the passages that the passage that comes after this, Gideon, as he rises up into his position of leadership, demonstrates not only protection from divine disfavor, but shows forth the blessing of divine blessing. Well, as the drama quiets down in Ulfra, a looming threat appears as the Midianites and the Amalekites and others cross over the Jordan and camp out in Israel's backyard in the valley of Jezreel. Now, up to this point, Israel had merely rolled over and played dead in response to these intruders. But now God has injected life into the Israelite people by raising up a leader who has first confronted their false gods and so consequently is now ready to confront Israel's enemies. Notice that Gideon does not lead the armies on his own strength. He goes forth like the other judges in the power of the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord clothes him. And so putting the army, the the armor of the Lord around him as he leads the armies against their foes. As he summons the, the men by the sound of the trumpet, Gideon prepares for battle. But yet on the eve of battle, before they would go against their enemies, Gideon seeks a sign of confirmation from the Lord. Many have questioned this text. Is this a lack of faith on Gideon's part? Is he perhaps testing God in a sinful manner, the way the devil tempted Jesus to put the Lord his God to the test? Well, I think it may be safe to say that while Gideon may not be a stellar example of faith at this point, he is not necessarily sinning, but in his weakness, seeking the true confirmation of the Lord and asking for the Lord's clear presence with him before he would lead such an effort. It would seem that the zeal characterized by Moses and Joshua has now faded and has now simmered down to barely above freezing in Israel at this time. But we must remember that Moses, at the beginning of his calling, had whined and had resisted the will of God before he became an effective instrument in the Redeemer's hand. Even Father Abraham, the man of faith, the friend of God, was slow to begin and stumbled often before establishing a legacy of faithfulness. 
And we would be wise to recall how often that Jesus had to rebuke his disciples for their lack of faith, for their self-centeredness, for their density in failing to understand his teachings. And so you and I should be slow to pass judgment upon these men of old, but rather see them as a reflection of our own weakness. You and I resist the Holy Spirit. We falter in our faith. Our zeal is lacking or misguided. We are rough around the edges like an unsculpted block of marble. And so we might say that the seeking of this sign may be not so much communicating the weakness of this man, but rather the graciousness of God. Notice not once but twice God fulfills this request. The first night the fleece remains wet and the ground is dry in the morning. And the following day, God fulfills the greater deed, damping the ground and yet leaving the fleece free of moisture, which a fleece would naturally absorb the moisture during the night. It would seem that God, in seeking to make his servants effective in his service, knows that people need time. They need confirmation. And so God is patient with them. We remember how patiently the Lord Jesus instructed his own followers. We're reminded that God is not in the hurry that you and I are so often caught up in. Nor is he the demanding tyrant that's characterized by the false gods who demand immediate obedience and performance with excessive expectations. No, our Lord is patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Friend, if you are a visitor here tonight, I want to speak a word to you to tell you that God is patient with you. That you are not rushed into the kingdom of God. However, as the time does approach when the opportunity to turn from idols to turn back to the living God, that time will come to an end. And so I exhort you tonight to not try the Lord's patience in a stubbornness or self-will, but rather seek him while he may be found. He gives grace to the humble, those who will lay down their idols and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And for those of us who know Christ, who have an assurance, a firm assurance of eternal life through his precious blood, we're reminded tonight how much better it is to serve the Lord than to serve false gods. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He fulfills his promises. He grants us the true desires of our hearts. Return to him. Seek him. Call upon his Holy Spirit to clothe you, to warm your cold, calloused heart, to make it tender and receptive to the mercies of God. And may we pray with 
pray for perseverance, that we may be devoted to him all of our days and even leave a lasting legacy. Well, Gideon will go on to do great things. As Pastor Light, hopefully we'll explore next week as we get into chapter 7 and chapter 8. But sadly, we can't say that Gideon finishes very well. And I closed making a few comments on the latter part of chapter 8 of Judges. It would seem that rather than leave a lasting legacy, Gideon's final actions leave a stumbling block for Israel, who will once again turn after worthless things. In his latter days, Israel will ask Gideon to rule over them as king, and Gideon declines the offer and boldly proclaims that the Lord himself will rule over you as king. Perhaps anticipating the idolatrous desire of future generations who desire to have a king just like the nations. And so they get the tyrant, King Saul, in in answer to their request. Gideon at first does well to resist the offer, but seems to yield to a desire for recognition. He makes a request of gold earrings from the plunder of their exploits. And with it, he makes an ephod, a priestly garment. And the text tells us in Judges 8, 25 through 27, that this ephod becomes a snare to Gideon and his family. And Israel will, prostrate, will prostitute themselves before it. Friends, are there things that we craft? Are there things that we bring into our homes that that becomes a snare to us and to our children? Are there things and practices and behaviors that are the equivalent of prostituting ourselves to things that we think will give us life rather than seeking the Lord alone for life? And in the final passage of Judges chapter 8, we learn the story of, of Gideon, how he has many sons and many wives, and one of his sons, Abimelech, Abimelech, rises up, a godless man who ruthlessly slaughters all of his brothers and leaves many cities in Israel in ruins, driven by his narcissistic ambition. And we come to the end in verse 33. It says that no sooner had Gideon died then the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. Sadly, it's as if they could hardly wait for him to die so they could return back to worshiping false gods. They were like self-centered children, greedily waiting for the death of their wealthy father so they could seize the inheritance. I've heard stories of retail stores that wait until the owner passes away. But the founder dies before they change practices that would would have been unthinkable while that person had lived. Caving into the pressures of our commercial society. Compromising standards that were intended to honor the Lord. Gideon's life challenges us to ask, what kind of legacy are we leaving for our children and future generations? Are we compromising with the 31 flavors of idolatry of our day that may sow discord 
in little vulnerable lives who may grow to turn away from us and away from the Lord? Or do we take a firm stance, an unyielding loyalty to leave a glorious legacy of faith in Jesus Christ? We ask ourselves tonight, are there elements in our lifestyles, in our busy schedules, in our pursuit of wealth and health, all of our commercial values? Are we setting ourselves up for a great fall? Or may we, like the wise builder, build a home upon a strong foundation? That foundation is Jesus Christ. Let us avoid the sandy foundations of this godless age. Make no room at your table for idols. Anchor deep in the Lord Jesus Christ, who at great personal cost became the Savior of many. Serve him. And may you know the peace of living for his glory that leaves a lasting legacy for generations to come until Christ returns. Let us pray. Dear gracious God, our Father, you have boldly declared in your word that you will take no other place than first. And I pray for us tonight that we may gladly bow before you, that we may gladly cast down the things that compete for our allegiance. Help us, O Lord, to see. Help us, O Lord, to trust you and to follow our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen.